Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we were last together, and we just last time we were together only really dealt with verses 9 and 10. We're going to finish this section tonight, I promise you. We have to because we did last night. But we're going to take some time to unpack some of Paul's teaching in this section of his letter to the Romans. And hopefully we're going to see some more specifics of how we're to avoid evil and hold on to the good and showing genuine love to each other. So let's look at verse 11. Verse number 11 says this, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Now, zeal is good. Zeal is a good thing. And actually, go back to chapter 12, look at verse 8. And, and talking about the different gifts, it had just said the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with what? With zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Zeal is a good thing. God wants us to be zealous in what we do for him. But be careful. Zeal without knowledge or an understanding of the spirit working through us actually is a bad thing. Go back to Romans chapter 10 and look at verses 1 through 4. Paul, again, talking about his heart's desire, as you see here for the Jews, he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So the Jews were zealous for God. I mean, the Pharisees, you talk about zealous. I mean, they tied on their mint and cumin and they were just all out. But they were missing knowledge. They didn't understand. And in the Jews' zealousness, what did they do to their own Messiah? They killed him. So zealousness is good. Being zealous and having zeal is good. But we need zeal with knowledge. But actually the scripture, our passage, look at verse 11 again. Look at what it says. It says, don't be slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in what? In the spirit. This is important. Whatever we do, we must do it with zeal and not laziness. For it's God whom we serve. But we must do it in his strength through the Holy Spirit, not us. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and look at what Paul says here. We're going to look at verses 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? 
So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul said, look, take your walk with Jesus just as serious as these athletes do when they're all back in the Olympic Games wanting a, a wreath that's going to rot away. Take it serious. The Bible actually says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, it says what? Work out your own salvation with what? With fear and trembling. But what's verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you both to will, that's the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. God is saying to us, look, I will do the work. I will give you the energy. I will empower what you do. But I have to wait until you yield to me first. You got to take serious this wonderful gift that you've been given in salvation and the empowering Holy Spirit who indwells us. But the Bible says that we have received his very great and precious promises so that we may partake of the divine nature. You have within you everything you need for life and godliness. Second Peter chapter one, verse three. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of him. And you have the ability to partake of the divine promises. But the Holy Spirit, who's within you and ready to empower you, is waiting for you on a daily basis to be not lazy, but serious about your walk and zealous, but fervent in what? In spirit. Go to Colossians chapter one. Go to Colossians chapter one. Look at verses 28 and 29. Oh, and by the way, as you're turning to Colossians 1, 28 and 29, let me make a little statement that will hopefully help you the rest of this study. Everything we're looking at here in this list in Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, you can't do. You can't do it. And if you try, you're going to fail. If you hear tonight's lesson and say, I need to do a better job in these areas, you've already totally missed it. You need to understand this is what God wants to accomplish. He's wanting us to believe that he will, but we have to act believing that it is him who empowers us. Look what Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him, meaning Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. We've talked about this before in our study. There's no such thing as burnout in the Bible. We talk about it a lot as Christians. Burnout. I'm burnout. Well, the Holy Spirit never runs out. Jesus promised us rivers of living water. We'd never thirst again. Yet many Christians never learned how to walk in the power of the Spirit. You might even be doing what God's called you to do, but in your own strength instead of in His power. Abraham and Sarah had to learn to wait upon God. They had to be faithful and act on what God had said, but wait until God's power made it work. Of course, they tried to help God with what he had promised in their own flesh, in their own energy, and that wasn't very good. Let's just leave it at that. But go, to, go back to Romans chapter 12. And look at the next verse. We've got to keep moving because i got a lot to cover. Let me just say this, though. As you're going to see a little bit later on in our study, um, there was a problem in the early church where people actually got very lazy. We're going to talk about it some more later in our study. But the early church got lazy. You know why? 
Because one of the strongest teachings of the early church is, is Jesus is coming back. And he is. And we don't know the day or the hour, but we're to be watching, we're to be looking, we're to be expecting him to return. And he could return at any moment. That was their teaching of the early church. Paul thought Jesus was going to return in his lifetime. That's why he said, and we who are alive are going to be caught up. So the early church started to say, well, if Jesus is coming back soon, and I see how the church is taking care of each other, they got lazy. And we have to be careful we don't get lazy, but I don't think we're going to get lazy because, well, Jesus is coming back. I think a lot of us are getting lazy because we're getting weary. Have you all noticed that Christianity right now and the church is really fighting with a lot of depression, weariness? By the way, I've been really meditating a lot on this recently because I've been seeing it as I travel around and deal with it. I'm actually uh, doing the funeral uh, a, a funeral on Saturday for a Christian man who committed suicide. He's in heaven with Jesus, but he got to the point where he was so weary, so tired of the struggle, that he didn't hold on to the promises of God, and he got depressed. But you ever notice how the Bible's full of passages that say, don't grow weary in doing good? There's going to be scoffers that come in the last days that say, where is this coming all along, the Bible told us it was going to be a while. And there's a tendency when we get weary to just get lazy. Now, some of you probably don't numb yourself with alcohol. Hopefully you don't, but a lot of people do. Some of you might just numb yourself with television or games on your phone just to kind of shut the brain off. And there's nothing wrong with that every now and then. But if you find yourself getting addicted to that kind of stuff, maybe there's something going on. You haven't learned how to feed on the spirit. We're not to be slothful in our zeal, but we're to be fervent in the spirit. But look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in what? In prayer. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm going to show you a few places. These three are usually all together in the scriptures. Let me say them again. We're to rejoice in hope. We're to be patient in trouble. And we're to be constant in prayer. Go to Romans chapter 8. Back up to Romans chapter 8. You'll see all three right there. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in what? In hope. So here we see that there's suffering, there's trouble, but there's also hope. That the create and hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we, if we hope for what we don't see, we wait for it with patience. Now, likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't even know what to pray for as we ought. 
But the Holy Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In this passage, there's all three right there. In this life, you're going to have trouble. But what did Jesus say? Take heart, have hope. In me, you can have peace. But here in this passage, he says, look, yes, we're going through suffering. But let me just tell you, hang on. Rejoice in the fact that what is to come blows that all away. All the trouble you're in, it blows it away. And on top of that, you got the Holy Spirit praying for you and helping you pray at the same time. So we're to be rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to take you to Romans 5, 1 through 11, but if you go to Romans 5, 1 through 11, you'll see it again, how he talks about we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because of our relationship with God. Go to Philippians chapter 4, though. In Philippians chapter 4, look at verses 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord, how often? Always. Again, I will say, in case you missed it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness, some translations say gentleness, which I think is actually even better. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Let your gentleness be known because you know God's right here and he's coming and you're going to be all right. But you're to be praying all the time. You're going to be talking to God as you're going to see in a little bit. The Bible says we're to be, as we've already have in verse 12 and other places, constant in prayer. Well, how am I to be constant in prayer, Jim? I got a job. I've got kids to take care of. I've got things to do. No, no. If you ever learn this, and I pray you do, you've got to learn to practice the presence of God. In other words, is he always with you? Will he ever leave you? Now, there's valuable times that we go get alone in our prayer closet, as you call it. And those times are necessary to get away and spend time in prayer. But Jesus lived continually in communication with the Father. He didn't just go off alone to pray. He continually prayed to the Father. And every now and then he gives us a little glimpse of it. When he walked up to the tomb of Lazarus, he prayed this out loud. He said, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. Actually, I know you always hear me. I just said that for the benefit of the people here listening. He let us in to his conversations that were going on with the Father. As Jesus did whatever he did, he was in constant communication with the Father. That's why the Father would tip him off sometimes as to what people were thinking in of her. Well, Jesus himself was God, and he also knew this, but the Bible says that whatever Jesus did, he only did what the Father had him to do. He, whatever he did was done by the Father, even not by Jesus, as he yielded himself to him. And we can live in that same way. And we need to learn how to be focusing on what is good, what is true. By the way, if that means you got to turn off the news. Don't you know that right now the media and it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on or which channel you like the best. 
They're all trying to pump you into getting upset, getting out, getting in, indignant about what that other side's doing or what the other side's doing. And unfortunately, it's affecting Christians to the point that they're all freaking out about what's going on in the globe. I'm going to say it nicely. Read your Bibles. Everything's right on schedule. If you know what Jesus said the last days were going to look like, this shouldn't surprise you. I'd be honest with you. I would have been a little bit more surprised if the election went the way the right thought it was going to go this past few last week. Because that doesn't match up with what the scripture says is going to happen. Things are going to get worse. The fact that our government today just voted to approve same-sex marriage even more across state lines shouldn't surprise you. It went through. It's now moving on to the next step. This shouldn't surprise us. I'm sorry? It's, it's waiting for whatever the next step is. I don't know where exactly what all the processes are, but it went through the Senate today. Again, are we going to go, oh, man. Or are we going to go rejoice in the Lord always? The Lord's in control. We are to pray. We're to vote. We're to contact our senators. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised if the world goes like the Bible says the world is going to go. We're to be constant in prayer, patient in tribulation. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verses 16 through 19. Look at verse 16. Does that sound familiar? Rejoice how often? Always. Pray without ceasing. Does that sound familiar? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I love this last one. Do not quench the spirit. Now, I'm going to take you somewhere into something God just showed me recently. You know the story about how Peter is in the boat with the rest of the disciples in the storm. Jesus is walking on the water from one side of the lake to the other. They see him. They think he's a ghost. They're afraid. He says, relax, it's me. Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to step out of the boat and walk on the water with you. Now stop for a second. Is that how most of us would check Jesus' ID? Most of us would have said, Lord, if it's really you, what's the password? Lord, if it's really you, who sat next to you at lunch on Thursday? But Peter does something very interesting. He says, Lord, I know you. If it's you, you're going to probably challenge me to step out of the boat and walk on the water with you. And if you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, how many times has he asked you to do something that seems crazy and it's a step out of the boat? Peter says, if it's really you, you're probably going to ask me to step out of the boat with you. And Jesus says, come on. Now, again, Peter would not have been acting in faith if he stepped out of the boat before Jesus said, come. Faith only begins after God has spoken. We act on what he says. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out and walks on the water. But he took his eyes off of Jesus and put him on the wind and the waves. And what happened? He started to sink and he started to freak out. Lord, help me. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, oh, you of little faith. Stop for a second. The dude had enough faith to step out of a boat in a storm and walk on water. Right? And for years, I thought that Jesus was saying that he was a, a man of little faith. I think what Jesus was saying was, 
your faith just got small in this instance. Do you understand what I'm saying? He wasn't labeling Peter as a man of little faith. He was labeling Peter as you took your eyes off of me. And when you took your eyes off of me, your faith shrunk and you started to freak out. Rejoice always. Be constant in prayer. That's the only way you're going to make it in this world. And do not quench the spirit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And if you rely on the flesh and look at things with man's eyes and look at things the way the media wants you to believe things and get sucked into all that, I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to get depressed. You're going to get freaked out. You are going to get discouraged. You are going to get weary. But the Bible says we who are followers of Jesus should not be focusing on those things. Whatever is right, whatever is honorable, whatever is true, whatever is praiseworthy, put your mind there. Since we've been raised, Colossians 3.1, since we've been raised with Christ, set your minds on things above. And the only way you can do that is to continually be in communication with Jesus throughout the day. Do you all realize while I'm teaching and preaching, I'm in communication with Jesus? Oh, I got notes, but I've already jumped off of them three times. But when he tells me to go here or there, I'm listening as he's showing me and I'm listening to how he would. A lot of times he'll say that they didn't quite get it. Go a little bit more. Other times he'll say they got it. Move on. And we need to learn how to be constant in prayer. And when we try to do things in our own effort, we quench the spirit. We shut it off. He doesn't ever shut it off. God will never stop giving you his grace you're the one who kinks the hose. And then when we kink the hose and do it in our own strength, he lovingly taps us on the shoulder and says, you kink the hose, look, unkink the hose. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 15 through 20. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but is wise, making the best use of the time because the days are what? Going to get better? No, the days are evil. Would we not agree that that probably is true? I think we would agree that it is true. Therefore, because the days are evil and he wants us to make the best use of the time and not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in the spirit, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Stop. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Look at verse uh, 16 through 19 again. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 19. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances for what? This is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now go back to Ephesians 5. Therefore, don't be, un don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled or be being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, for the Fa God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen. The Bible actually says that what, we're to, what is the will of God for us is that we're to be rejoicing always. We're to be praying and talking to him continually. We're to be giving thanks in all things. We're to be focusing on the truth. You know what? Is it going to get worse? Yes. Are you going to be OK? The Bible says yes. Does that mean we'll never have any problems or any struggles between now and then? No. But actually, the Bible says it's in the struggles that he's going to use to grow our faith, to increase our walk with him. That's what he uses we pray for pray these prayers. Lord, may I have no problems. 
That's what we pray for. What we're really saying is, Lord, I don't want to know you anymore. It's kind of what you're praying if you let the Bible talk. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 10, I want to know Christ. He already knew Christ. Yeah, but he wanted to know him more. And the fellowship of sharing in your sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Jesus learned obedience, the book of Hebrews says, through what he suffered. Yet we want a Christianity where nothing bad happens. And by the way, you can fill churches with that kind of preaching, even though it doesn't match up with the scriptures or real life. But hear what he says. He says, just like people yield themselves to the control of alcohol, yield yourself to the control of the Spirit. Be being filled. Again, we've already quoted it. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given you everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of him. You've already gotten everything you need. You don't need. So when it says be filled, it doesn't mean you need a second filling. It doesn't mean you need to have a certain preacher lay hands on you and you'll receive more of God. That's not what the Bible teaches. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. In Christ Jesus, the deity lives in bodily form and you have been filled in him. The being, be being filled is continually drinking of him, not quenching the spirit. He's there. He's ready. He's wanting. But he's waiting for us to pray. He's waiting for us to believe. And how do we know what he's promised? How do we know what he said? What are the good things we're to focus on? Um, I think the Bible called it Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. <laughs> the truth of the word of God. Folks, the reason why the church today is looking like just everybody else in our neighborhood who's freaking out and spending more time trying to get their political party to change America instead of Jesus is because we have stopped looking to Jesus. We're to be constant in prayer, patient in tribulation, rejoicing always, because that is the will of God. That is the will of God. Time-wise, I don't have you turn to many of these. Acts chapter 1, write it down, look at it later on. Acts 1, 12 through 14. The early church, Jesus said to them, after he, right before he ascended, go wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promised Holy Spirit. So they did. But you know what they did while they were waiting? Take a wild guess. They prayed. They prayed. They prayed. Oh, and then the Holy Spirit came to indwell them. Luke, Luke 18, verse 1, look at it later on. Jesus told a story about a, a widow and her persistence to teach us that we ought to pray and never give up. Go to verse 13. Now, some of you are saying, Jim, we are not going to finish this section tonight. Yes, we will. Relax. This is the last verse we're going to do at one time because actually the rest of the verses all go together. And I'll show you that in just a second. Verse 13 of Romans 12 Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 42 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Peter's just preached under the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved. By the way, I read a devotional this past week that said this. He said there was 120 in the upper room. And then Peter preached and 3,000 were added to their number. He said, we, we could have a church of 3,000 who added 120 and we'd be pretty impressed. Can you even imagine having a church of 120 and having 3,000? But that's the difference between man's energies and effort and the power of the Spirit. I don't think we'd want it if that happened because it would change what we sing and how we sat, where we sat. But that's another message for another day. 
Yeah, we'd have to have more than one service and we wouldn't know each other. And, oh, never mind. I don't, don't get me there. Go to Acts chapter 2. Look at verses 42 through 47. And they, the ones that just got saved, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the Word of God, to the fellowship, that's each other, to the breaking of the bread, that's the Lord's Supper, and prayers. That's all they devoted themselves to. What about evangelism? Actually, the Bible says if you focus on these four things, evangelism just naturally happens. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Jump over to chapter 4. Look at verses 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, a lot of people nowadays will say, oh, the early church were communists. They all had everything in common. They all took all their money and put it in a big pile, and then they redistributed it. That's not what the Bible teaches. Actually, if you were to keep reading right where I left off, there's a man named Barnabas. We know Barnabas. He actually sold a piece of property, gave them out to the church to do with it, whatever they wanted to take care of the needs of the body. Chapter 5, though, Ananias and Sapphira realized that people noticed what Barnabas did and they wanted some attention. So they sold a piece of property, but they agreed together to act like they were given the whole amount and keep some of the money for themselves. And listen to what Peter says. He said, before you sold that property, wasn't it yours to do with it however you wanted? And after you sold it, wasn't the money still yours to do whatever you want? It wasn't communism. When it says they had everything in common, what it says was this. Their attitude was, we are family in Jesus Christ. He's made us one. So if I've got something that you need, it's yours. Actually, I've experienced that in the past month when my uh, son came over to our house and tore a deck that I, I had built 20-something years ago. He, built, he, I, he, he tore it down for some money. But there's a lot of material in this deck that had to be hauled off. Well, we don't have any way to haul it off. I'm not going to throw it in the back of my wife's minivan. She wouldn't have liked that. There was a lot of lumber, pressure treated. It has to go to the special dump up in Cocoa. But my friend, my brother in Christ, Chris Wilson back there, has a trailer. And so I said, hey, can we have your trailer? And he said, $100 a day. No, he didn't. He said, my trailer is your trailer. We went over to their house and had dinner and worked on cruise stuff. And while we were there, loaded up, praise God, I just got a new vehicle that had a hitch. And we loaded it up. And his trailer was our trailer for the next couple of days as we loaded it up and took it up to the dump and came back. That's what it means. Showing hospitality has many levels. But understand this. It's an attitude of generosity that says, do you need it? And I have it and I can meet the need. I want to. Now, let me just clarify something as well. The Bible also says that we need to do this sharing with each other with wisdom. You still need to be fervent in the spirit because there are those who will take advantage of everybody saying, hey, let's just share with each other. I was a pastor for many years in churches around the country. And trust me, there are families in each neighborhood who work the system 
of going to churches because they expect the church to meet their needs. And they do a rounds. Go to 1 Timothy 5. The early church took care of the widows, but they didn't just take care of every widow. 1 Timothy 5, look at verses 3 through 8. He says this. He says, Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And then he goes on with more instructions about the, the widow can be enrolled if she meets these qualifications. You don't just share it. Make sure that it's a real need. Listen to the spirit. By the way, when you stop at every corner out there, there's going to be somebody with a sign. Let me ask you a quick question. Are they all legit? No. How are you going to know? You're not going to fully know, but you are going to know when the spirit's going to tell you to do something. And you're going to know when the spirit says not to. And you have to be listening to the Lord as you do it. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. You're in, you're in 1 Timothy, back up to 2 Thessalonians 3. Look at what I told you about earlier about the laziness of people. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 6 through 15. It says, Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we weren't idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work and quietly do their work quietly and earn their own living. Now as for you brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. Now if anyone doesn't obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed, but don't regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. There were people who hey, the early church is all making sure there was nobody that had a need and some people thought I like this. And the Spirit of God through the apostles had to say, you, can, you got to be careful. You understand? But what should be your attitude? Not expecting people to take care of you, but being willing and ready to share with those who have need. And especially the household of faith. Now, I'm going to jump forward because we've got a lot to cover. Go to verses 14 through 21. Go to Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. I'm going to read this last section because you're going to see that all ties together. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. 
Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These verses, like I said, all go together. But one of the keys to this whole section is in the second half of verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly and never be wise in your own sight. In other words, do not see yourself as more important than other people or better than other people. And that's a strong tendency that we all have. How many of you ladies have uh, looked at a post on Facebook of a brother or sister and thought, well, I can't believe that she lets her kids wear that. Be careful. Now you're setting yourself up as judge. I'm not saying that there aren't things that if you have a relationship that God may not have you speak to at some point. But most of the time, I'm going to say, assume that the Lord's working on it and he doesn't want it, doesn't need your help. That'll help you have the right attitude when we move into this section. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 3 through 8. Very familiar passage, but I want you to see something in just a second that you might not have seen. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now let each of you not look not only to his own interests, you, you are to look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. You already have it, if you learn how to walk in the Spirit, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, this passage says, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, consider others more significant than yourselves. Now, let me say something to you. You can't do that until you actually understand verses 1, 2, and 3. Sorry, 1 and 2. We jump to verse 3. Look at verses 1 and 2. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from His love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. In other words, you can't consider others more important than yourselves until you understand how awesome you are in Christ. Because when you really understand how much God loves you and how much God's for you and you believe the promises and the things that he said about you, you don't care if anybody else notices how great you are. Do you see what I'm saying? When you feel a need to defend yourself or to defend your rights, you're actually not trusting in the fact that God has got you. Let me give you an example from my own personal experience. I love to preach. And to be honest with you, the more opportunities I get to preach, the better. And to be really honest with you, the bigger the crowd, the more I like it. There are some people that aren't wanting to speak in front of big groups. The bigger the group, the better I preach. So this is a small group. You guys are getting my worst stuff here. So let me just say this. 
But for years, as a preacher, I would be jealous of friends of mine that I thought I preached better than getting to preach in venues that were bigger than, the, than what I was getting to preach at. Until I came to realize what the Bible said. The Bible actually says that if God opens a door for Jim Johnson, no man can shut it. And if God shuts a door for Jim Johnson, Jim Johnson can't open it. And I've come to the point now where I actually am content with whatever venue I get. By the way, this past week when I was in New Orleans, I was speaking to the leadership of a make church. But I had to get to that point where I trusted that God would take care of that. And I'm okay. I don't see myself as better than anybody else anymore. I see a great big God who loves me and he has a plan for my life. And if I yield myself to him, everything he has planned for me to do, I'll get to do. Every place he's planned for me to preach, I'll get to preach at. Are there some things I'm praying for? Oh, without question. I'll be honest with you, for years I've been praying for an opportunity to get in some of our seminaries around the country and share the eight principles of a God-centered church book that I wrote years ago with the young preacher boys before they get into the church. Instead of having to deal with the stuff after. But you know what? I have connections. I know people in all these places and I could make phone calls. But I'm not gonna. Because if it's God's plan, he'll open that door. And I just want to say to you, get to that place for yourself where you so trust that you have comfort from his love, fellowship in the spirit. You're so comfortable in who you are in Christ Jesus and how much he loves you and how he'll withhold from you no good thing that if anybody is out to get you or does you wrong, you know your big father is going to take care of it and you leave it to him. But when you get offended, oh, and by the way, is the world not getting offended easily right now? I mean, the cancel culture is unbelievable. He said that, that offended me. Write them off. If you get offended, it's because you see yourself as higher than you ought to. Jesus was God, is God. He made everything, including all the people that were calling him demon-possessed and a half-breed. Do you know they called him a half-breed? When they called him a Samaritan, they were calling him a half-breed because the Samaritans were those Jews who had gone and married with the Babylonians and made babies who weren't pure Jews. So when they called him a Samaritan, they were calling him a half-breed. Oh, when they called him a Nazarite or a Nazarene, that wasn't a compliment either. He was from the other side of the tracks. Yet, what did he do? He took it. And he died for all those people. But he was God. Could he have done something about it? Sure. Could he have taken names? Sure, but he didn't. He actually said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I actually think in the Greek, the Bible says that he was saying it repeatedly. You know, in the, in the Gospels, it shows us him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But in the Greek, it's almost written like he was saying it repeatedly. Like the whole time they're nailing his hands. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. As they stood the cross up, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. As he looked out on the crowd, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. And I think that's honestly part of the reason why the Bible tells us that both thieves were making fun of him, but one of them changed his mind during that time that he was on the cross. 
Because he probably kept hearing him say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Stephen, when he was stoned, what was his prayer? Father, don't hold this against them. Why? He wanted them to be saved. He knew that, you know what? If I die, I get to go be with you. And your heart is that they get to go be with you too. And I want that for them. But too many of us have lost sight of the fact that anything we are is because of Jesus. And if someone does need to be taken care of, he'll deal with that in his time, in his way. You're about to go to Thanksgiving. You're going to see people in your family that push your buttons. Me too. But you know what? If you can go to that Thanksgiving get-together, resting in Christ, rejoicing always, being constant in prayer, fervent in the Spirit, God actually might use you to bless these people instead of just avoiding them. And by the way, you know who God just brought to mind. Go to 1 Peter 2. Go to 1 Peter 2. Look at verses 20 through 23. First Peter chapter two, starting in verse 20, for what credit is it, is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Actually, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Isn't that cool? The whole time that everybody was out to get him, he kept his eyes on the Father. And he gave us an example. You know how many Christians are nowadays planning their compound? where they can hide away, they're stocking up reserves and weapons so they can just get away from everybody. That's not why we're here. If the salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? We're not to be of the world, but we're to be in the world. And Christians isolating ourselves, we'll never, hopefully, if you stay faithful to the Bible, say that homosexuality is okay, it's a sin. But does that mean you don't ever go to the business of someone who's a homosexual? How are you going to go love them? But Christians are like, no, you don't go do your business there. They're gay. Yeah, but Jesus went and ate with sinners. He went and loved on them. He never approved of their sin. Oh, and by the way, if you tell them that what they're doing is sin and you do it in love, oh, they'll, they'll get angry at you. They'll say you really don't love me because if you love me, you'll approve. That's not what the Bible teaches. But at the same time, the temptation for all of us is to isolate and pull away. But that's not who Jesus is and who he was. He's given us an example. You're going to have people do you wrong. Love them. Love them. This means, by the way, moving away from our natural inclination to live for ourselves. And to avoid certain people. We must now show mercy and compassion to those people when God's prompting us to. 
Go to Romans 12 again. Look at verses 15 and 16. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with who? The lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Go to Matthew chapter 20. Verses 25 through 28. People, by the way, have said for years, Jim, why do you use so many scriptures? Here's why. I got nothing to say. But God's word is powerful by itself. Matthew 20, verses 25 through 28. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Bible actually says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that God has placed us all in the body as he sees fit. We all have different roles and different responsibilities, and we need each other. We need each other. Have you all noticed that there's also another tendency going on in this world for Christians to isolate themselves because of COVID or whatever? And we're blessed. You know, the Bible study that I do on Tuesday nights now is Facebook Live, and people all around the country are able to tune into it. Actually, it's been blowing our minds at how many people are watching live every Tuesday night. And my daughter, who works for our ministry doing the social media, can keep track of how many people have actually watched the Bible studies. And by the end of the week, over 800 people usually have tuned in from around the country. I thank God for that. It's expanded our ability to get the gospel out, but it's also a problem. Because a lot of Christians nowadays are saying, I'll just sit home and watch the service from home. Listen again to Hebrews chapter 10. It says, let's consider how to stir one another on toward love and good deeds. And let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some. Listen closely to it. It makes so much more sense nowadays. And all the more as you see the day approaching. That interesting. You and I have been studying the Bible and preaching it for years. We've preached that passage, but it's jumping off the page now. Do you think the Holy Spirit, when he told the Hebrew writer to write that, might have known that in these last days, Christians would even be stronger, tempted to isolate? We need each other. I like this row right here. Because you all are living Christian life together. I love it. And your walk with the Lord is stronger because of it, correct? You wouldn't be where you are in your level of maturity and your walk with Jesus if it wasn't for each other. You need each other. We need each other. Oh, by the way, um, sometimes somebody's going to offend the other one. It's going to happen. Probably never intentionally, but maybe even sometimes intentionally, because sometimes we get in the flesh. But a lot of times it's unintentional. 
And if we honestly can get to that point where we're doing what the scripture says, we're letting our love be genuine. And as we looked at earlier, we can't get there until we receive the genuine love of Jesus. Daily renewing our minds, setting our minds on things above, rejoicing because he's here and he's got me. I love how Jesus, when he turned to his disciples, said this right before the cross. He says, you're all going to go away, each to your own home. But I won't be alone. The Father is with me. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, said, At my first defense, no one stood by me. Everyone left. Listen closely. May it not be held against them. Because the Lord was with me. And he's always with me. Folks, some of you are fighting loneliness. Jesus is right there. You need not feel alone. You need to renew your mind to the truth that the creator of the universe, the God of all gods, is in you. How could we feel alone? Well, here's why. We've stopped doing everything Paul's saying here. And what's that? We kink the hose. I love it. We kink the hose. We're actually quenching the spirit. He's there. He's ready. And he's forgiving. And he's patient. But Jim, I've kinked the hose for so long. He don't care. He knows. And he loves you. And he's patient. And he just says, let's get going from here. And we'll close with this. When Jesus rose from the dead after Peter had denied that he even knew him. And by the way, the Bible says not only did he deny that he didn't know Jesus, he swore. He swore. I swear to God. I never met the man. By the way, did Jesus say that was kind of a no-no? Go back and read the Gospel of Matthew. That's a no-no. Paul, when it says he swore, that's what he did. He swore an oath. I swear to God, I've never met the guy. Jesus meets back up with him. By the way, when Peter denied Jesus, he was around a fire. The Bible says that Jesus has a fire on the shore. They come in from the shore. He says, bring some of the fish you caught. And I almost kind of pictured Jesus with a little wink saying, hey, Peter, last time I saw you on around a fire, what was going on? This fire reminds me of something. And he says this, do you love me? And Peter says, I do. Listen to what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, then why did you deny me, Peter? By the way, Satan loves to talk like he's God. You got to learn to recognize who's really talking to you. Jesus doesn't say, then why'd you deny me? Jesus said, let's get going from here. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then Jesus asked him a second time, Peter, do you love me really more than these? Like you said, because you said, I don't know about the rest of these bums, but I'll die for you. Do you really love me more than these? And Peter says, I do. Jesus said, let's get going from here. Feed my lambs. And asked him a third time, letting him know, I know you did it three times and it's all right. Do you love me? And this time Peter was hurt because he had asked him this. But listen to what Peter says. Peter's light clicks on as he answers him. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I can picture Jesus smiling at him and saying, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Years ago, a preacher said this at a conference I was at. He said Peter was probably wondering why Jesus would pay him this much attention 
I mean, Peter had just denied the Lord. He had acted like he never knew him. He had promised that he was the greatest of all the apostles and disciples. And now he'd proven himself to be the lowest and the worst. Why are you even paying attention to me, Jesus? Move me to the back of the bus. Why, why don't you just start working with these other guys? I'll just be glad to be a small part of what you've done. I'm a failure. Why are you even paying me attention? And this preacher said it this way. He goes, because Jesus probably looked at him and said, hey, that's because I'm, uh, I'm putting together the order of worship for Pentecost. And I'm thinking about penciling you in for the sermon. Folks, have you done it perfectly? Neither is Jim Johnson. But we have a God who says, let's get going from here. Let these truths sink in and be fervent in spirit. I love you. We'll see you in two weeks. Have a great Thanksgiving.